This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, so we're, we're, we're here today with Carl Bass, who is the CEO of Autodesk. And uh, one of the thinkers that David and I most admire in the field of sort of design, future of design, how computing is changing design, and how, uh, you know, digitization is having an effect on just about any kind of company. So welcome, Carl. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, uh, you know, we, we, we talk with uh, a lot of people from, from startups, a lot of engineers, not so many CEOs of publicly held companies. And... Um, just tell us what what is a day in the life of Carl Bass like? So my my day my days are very varied. If I ask my kids, you know, they they just accuse me of, you know, talking on the phone and doing email. Uh-huh. Yep. That is not true. I want to <laughs> categorically for the record state that I don't spend all my time. You know, at a large organization, you do spend a lot of time shepherding this thing and that thing. Um, you spend a lot of time. You know, I would say there's a fair amount of the job. That's somewhat obligatory. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. just things that you find yourself have to do. Boardroom intrigue. Exactly. And the more I've done it, the more I've learned how to call those things mm-hmm. that I don't think are important or don't add value. Uh-huh. You know, in the beginning, like when I first took the job, there was a long list of people told me, you got to do this, you got to do that, you know, and I added it up and it would be like seven years worth of work in one year. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I quickly realized that was physically impossible and it was not interesting. Yeah. You know, and so I, what I what I try to do as much as possible is a handful of things that I think are important. So one is there are projects inside a company that change the direction. Uh-huh. There are points of inflection for the company. So I can't possibly think of managing all the projects or even having a Mm -hmm. say or a hand in them. So I choose a couple that I think are demonstrations to the organization Mm -hmm. of what's important. Second thing I think, you know, and when I came in and first started as the CEO, I thought a lot of the job was making the decisions. Uh Uh And I think that's kind of the misperception from people who start out as small company CEOs. As a small company startup CEO, and I've been in that role as well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you do make all the, you know, yeah. decide to take out the trash. You decide, you know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you're talking to a potential investor or potential customer. While and breaking a potential down cardboard place. boxes with a box cutter at the same exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. All of that happens. Mm-hmm. What I found out in a big company is that you can't do that. There are mm-hmm. things going on every day. There's 10,000 people around the world doing stuff. And the thing that you can actually really influence is the culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can, and you can set examples and you do either you know consciously or unintentionally. And you can really influence um, what people value and what the organization values and how they behave and how they go about making decisions. All that's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that is truly more important because it has a, it has a much w- more widespread effect and a much more long-lasting effect. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, if you get involved in, you know, like you would at a start, let me spend three hours reviewing the proposed designs for the new logo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Great. Now you've just spent three hours on the new logo, which probably makes very little difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And nobody, none of the people you've hired who you you wanted to do that actually do that. Mm -hmm. So a place like this where there's people to do that, you should do it. You should allow them to do their best work. Yeah. And so I see a lot of the job is bringing in the best people mm-hmm. and helping develop the culture. Equipping them to to, to make yeah. the right yeah. decisions. Yeah. So I go around and I spend a, on a handful of projects that I think are really interesting. A lot of it really ends up being models for the culture. And then I spend a little bit of time just looking for the people doing the most interesting stuff in the world. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, I feel like very fortunate. I get to work with all these like amazingly creative and talented people. Yeah. You know, and so whether it's visiting their studio mm-hmm. or, you know, just talking about what they're trying to do. and You must go on the coolest factory tours. Yeah. And you get great yeah. factory <laughs> tours and, you know, you get on test tracks and... I must say, when people want me to go up in their experimental aircraft or their uh-huh. experimental submersibles, yeah. that's where I kind of draw the line. Okay. It's okay. like, that thing is so cool. Yeah. I do not want to get yeah. in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's interesting in the role of a toolmaker uh-huh. is that people kind of confide in you their creative secrets and insecurities. Uh-huh. Oh. You know, they kind of say, this is what I really want my tool to do. The, you know, I know like- this thing got a lot of praise, but what I really wanted was this. Uh-huh. Like, so even last night when we were looking at this object, the person was describing the curvature and the surfacing and the emotion that they wanted to convey in this object uh-huh. and how the tool that they used helped them or didn't help them do that. Yeah. And so that's a very common occurrence. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter if Jim Cameron's talking about how does he do a feature length motion capture film or the person who's talking about a a building or the person who's talking about the aircraft of, you know, 2050. Yeah. yeah, They they all have something they're trying to accomplish and the tool is either going to help them get there or it's going to be in the way or some combination of the two. And so they tell you a lot about it. And that's really interesting. Not only in the, you know, the part that I can take away is not only what should we go do with the tool, Mm -hmm. but it's just their insight into the process and, you know, and how they think about it. So you get this cross section of all the creative people. Right. You know, so, you know, unfortunately, you know, whether, you know, it was unfortunate the passing this week of Zaha Hadid. Oh, yeah. So if you talk to Zaha or you talk to Frank Geary and they tell you, this is what, you know, when Frank says, this is what I was trying to do. And he shows you the models or, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to any of the design studios, um, you know, the product design companies. And they tell you this is what they were trying to accomplish for their clients. Yeah. It, it's really interesting to hear that insight kind of distilled down. And in many ways, they take months of hard work and learning and they just give you these capsules of you know knowledge. And so right. that, that that's really exciting and really revealing. So I try to make sure I do that. And I'm always looking for not necessarily the people with the biggest names, but it's often the people doing the most interesting work. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and so those are the people that I seek out. Yeah, people have an idea of, of something really interesting, but but need new capabilities in order to actually yeah. get there. Yeah, like we see it nowadays, you know, whether it's additive manufacturing and it's very cool, but the tool set is not complete or, mm-hmm. you know, the workflow is bad. Mm-hmm. Or you, we hear it a lot with composites. Mm-hmm. Like we're doing a ton of work with composites, but it is really hard to get from here to there. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, you know, so... Um, People who are inventing the processes that go along. Yeah. And, you know, and it's it's interesting. I got an interesting email this morning from a guy in Poland who builds aircraft. 
And he said, I'm very old school. And he says, you know, when we want to load up wings, and he showed me this picture of a wing sitting on some cinder blocks mm -hmm. and like a thousand sandbags on top of it. Mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. that's what we do. And yeah. he, but they've been very successful in making this aircraft. And so they were all of a sudden saying to us, how could we do this in a new digital way? And so, uh -huh. you know, sometimes it is really people at the very cutting edge, but other times it's people who have like this hard learned, mm -hmm. you know, kind of just grassroots knowledge. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and trying to help them move into a digital phase. This is a total tangent, but just to throw this out there, I realized I learned um, the other day, when I say the other day, I mean like a year and a half ago from okay. one of my friends who is a uh, designer is giving a presentation about the, the evolution of CAD tools. I guess you probably know this already, but um, the whole spline tool, you know how like when you when you draw a spline in Illustrator or something like that, mm -hmm. um, you have those two control points and it's kind of counterintuitive how it like kicks the, the elbow part out. And it's like, why was it designed? I just always thought it was like that. But it turns out the reason why it's like that is because the spline was actually a thing that when you would do drafting, you get uh -huh. up on the drafting table and it was like this bendy, bendy kind of rubberized. Yeah. So I would say close. Um, the way I, the story that I've always learned is that spline started in um, boat lofts. Mm -hmm. And hmm. what what they would do is they would have to lay out the shape of a curve that would actually be followed by wood. Yeah. So then you would bang nails into into the floor of the loft, and you would use a physical piece of wood. You try to take the wood that was the thickest piece of wood that could Make adopt that, that curve. curve, and you would huh. put it in there, and that's the shape it took, which was you know kind of. Um, the trick in it was, you know, and, and you you would use other weights and stuff to manipulate it to get yeah. the form you want and squash it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then later on, a bunch of people came along with a bunch of math to try to figure out what was going on. And so, mm -hmm. you know, first it started with the car industry. Um, there was a guy, I believe his name is Pierre Bezier, but yeah. it's Bezier curves. Yeah, yeah. And then there were these other polynomial approximations of it mm -hmm. that, were, that, you know, became various forms of B-splines. Yeah. So is that where the, like, the 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 UI convention comes from? Because, I mean, as a, because as, I remember when I was first learning, you know, drawing in the computer and stuff like that, I mean, as someone who'd never done any drafting by hand, I find it incredibly counterintuitive. But I thought it was an <laughs> interesting story to like, you know, if that's that's where the that that UI convention comes from, it it makes it make more sense. Yeah, I think I think that was the mental model that people, you know, all, all the time, you know, a lot of us get frustrated with pieces of software, mm -hmm, CAD mm -hmm, software, drawing mm -hmm. software. What I've gotten in my old age is, on one hand, I've gotten crankier with bad software. Yeah. But another <laughs> part, I've at least said to myself at some time, everyone who actually makes a piece of software. There is a mental model that underlies yeah, it. Right. There, there is some internal logic. Mm -hmm. It may not be mine. Yeah, exactly. I may not be able to discover it, but if before I totally throw it away, it's usually worth figuring out what the what they were thinking. Yeah. Right, yeah, I, right. I, I, and it's not like they released something that never worked. They never drew any, you know, because sometimes yeah. you go, this thing yeah. doesn't work. At all. There's something there. Mm -hmm. Right. And the question is whether you can discover it. Once you figure it out, then you may want to discard it. Right. That's true. Um, you know, and, the, you know, the tricky thing in many of these things is, you know, also um, developing user interfaces that make sense for novices and sophisticated people. I'd say that's one of the trickiest things. Yeah. You know, so these things that sometimes... Um, you sacrifice the discoverability for the new user 
um, for when you do this all day long, you know, you watch somebody in Illustrator or any of the solid modeling programs. Yeah. They're totally yeah. fluent in it. Yeah. They know all the, key, a new person. the keyboard shortcuts. Yeah. And so that's the big trade off. And I think the best pieces of software manage to do both. They make right. it discoverable and easy for the new person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the power user can get their work done really quickly and almost without thinking. Yeah, yeah, you you can see a lot of this illustrated in Photoshop, right? Yeah. I think I think that's the best that's the best software to look at for for this effect because this is like thirty year old software now, maybe even older, and yeah. and it has been the standard for like power users for thirty years. And so there right. are people who have been using it for thirty years, and they expect every bit of functionality that they depend on that's in their muscle memory uh, to still be there. But at the same time, every year it comes out, it has to have a few extra features, it has to be more sophisticated, more powerful, and still be accessible to people who are like 17 years old and getting into digital photography. One thing that I think about sometimes is like, I wonder about what's the inflection point at which piece of software goes from being like, I guess, a utility to being like a tool that you must be a skilled user to use, right? Because like Microsoft Word, you can sit down, you can type a letter. But if you're using something like Inventor, SolidWorks, Illustrator, Altium, whatever, there's many, many different ways to use the tool and there's many paths that you can get to to arrive at kind of the same thing. And like you have to learn and live with the software and live with your your experience level and everything like that. And, and everybody kind of has their own way of doing things. And like when does something make that transition into being and is that good if it's like so complicated you can't do anything but also there's not like one clear so so i think there's a couple things one thing is we've learned over the years of watching people learn software yeah is that there are these clear plateaus mm -hmm. hmm. you know so you know particularly things you know like inventor or solidworks or you know recently when we introduced fusion yeah you can see these clear plateaus and when you measure people's satisfaction while they're climbing the first hill they're like, this is awesome. And they think, you know, <laughs> it's, there's a glorious future. Uh -huh. And then they get to the plateau. And so, for example, they know how to sketch and extrude and revolve things. Yeah. 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 And they're like, and I they want to make it, a gear now. And, and they live like, there for oh, a while. Yes, yeah. that's exactly <laughs> and what happens. And like, how, where's the gear yeah. command? And they yeah. can't do it. And they get incredibly <laughs> yeah. frustrated. And their, le their level of satisfaction goes way down. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And then they just like get it together after hours or weeks or sometimes months yeah. and they start the next climb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go through it and they go, this is great. And so there is this interesting thing that is totally, you know, it's not a linear thing. Mm -hmm. There's lots of points of inflection in people's satisfaction and their knowledge of the product. Yeah. Right, right, right. Now, you know, now the interesting thing, I was I was at a design firm yesterday over at Lunar and I was having a conversation with one of the principal guys who runs the design studio. And we were talking about when you use these tools, when they actually aid you in solving a problem and when they get in the way. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's an interesting question whether you're in Photoshop or you're in Fusion and you're, you know, are you at the right tool at the right point in the process? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and I think one of the tendencies many of us have is to jump into some of the digital tools too quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and for example, you know, in the world of solid modeling tools, it asks you to start talking about geometry before you even know if you have an answer to your engineering problem. Yeah. Right, right, right. That may not be yeah, a exactly. good thing, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or you get into Altium, you know, or Eagle, you know, and you're all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, draw you're drawing lines. And it's yeah, like, hold right. on, what am I making? Yeah. Right, right, you know, right. Um, I have a very complicated circuit, but I still don't know what it does or if it works. Then, right, yeah. right, right. And I, and I think that's, you know, that's one of them. But it is interesting also to watch a next generation of people enter the workforce mm -hmm. who are totally fluent in new tools. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. Uh, maybe two years ago, Michael Graves, the well-known architect, mm -hmm. wrote this piece in the Sunday New York Times, and he was lamenting um, the lack of drawing skills 
hmm. amongst the people entering the workforce. And he was kind of throwing CAD software under the bus. Uh -huh. yeah. uh -huh. And, you know, about a thousand people sent me the article. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as if I hadn't seen it myself. Right, but, right, right. Uh, about a thousand people sent it to me. And on one hand, you know, I had a bunch of simultaneous thoughts. One is, if you've ever seen Michael Graves' drawings, uh -huh. you know, it's like Michael Jordan saying, you know, nobody else can really shoot a basketball. You know, <laughs> yeah. or Steph yeah, yeah, Curry right, saying right, right. that. Really sad. Yeah, really yeah, sad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> they, they just can't shoot like, like we could. <laughs> right, right, um, right. Um, and, and so there's a little bit of that. And a little bit it was kind of like, you know, an old man reminiscing Mm -hmm. about a, a time that's gone by because I watch, you know, around here where we have many young folks who have grown up, you know, digital natives. They've been using the tools we've talked about for a dozen years, you know, and they're 22 years old. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And they seem almost as fluent and expressive with design tools as someone is with a pencil and paper. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and you watch it and all the, you know, I, I had this awesome experience. I went, to, I went to BMW and there was a young guy there and they wanted me to see this. And he could take these tools that were really not designed for designing cars. And in a matter of about 15 minutes, he had taken kind of a blob mm -hmm. and turned it into something that was clearly recognizable, not only as a car, but as a BMW. That's wow. pretty cool. You know, and so, yeah, you know, you could sketch and in the same time do it. But all of a sudden, I mean, there was there was this other thing and it had the added benefit of it really w was a 3D thing. He could print it out or have it, you know, yeah. Cutting clay, yeah, and yeah, hold yeah. hold the thing an hour later. Right. It's cool how you see people like over the years getting getting to do like clever things with the tools. It's not just like oh, I bought a piece of software that can now have this feature. It's like people start thinking about different ways to do it because you know you can see. I like to look at old old products and and you can kind of see when when CAD happened Absolutely. in like the eighties and nineties and like the difference in like things that were designed before then and after that and like right when CAD was starting, it's just like clearly. People are like, oh yes, I can, I can do this feature, and I can do this, and it, and it, it doesn't have the same. But now people are kind of starting to learn how to use CAD tools more fluently, I guess. Yeah, well, I would say, I mean, tools have always influenced the mm -hmm. things we've made. Yeah. You can clearly see when we learned how to steam wood right, yeah. or right. laminate wood, and you can see a whole line of furniture that came as the aircraft industry and our skills at working aluminum got better. Mm -hmm. You can see aluminum make its way. You know, uh, across the landscape, both in the home mm -hmm. and in the office, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, almost every technique or tool has that influence. Yeah, cat tools clearly. Mm -hmm. You can see buildings and say, "This is kind of the mid '90s yeah. when all of a sudden we were able to make curtain walls that had more interesting shapes." Yeah, right, right, right. I think two things have happened. I think there are way more tools available today. People, people are better with the tools. You know, they're much more skilled and the level of sophistication of the users is way higher. And the tools themselves have started to get much better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. in the early days, we were really limited. You know, we had to do lines and circles and, you yeah. know, kind of simple shapes. And nowadays, you know, and we've gotten to the point where some of these things are hard to do any other way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, as someone who's, you know, I've been making things for a long time. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Yeah. For a really long time. And it's only in the last 10 or 12 years that I started using CAD tools. Yeah, so like, I'd been involved in 
building CAD tools, yeah. you know, for 25 or 30 years. But they haven't been an intuitive part of your toolbox. Right. Mm -hmm. I would much rather have drawn and built prototypes and made things out of clay and foam and stuff. Mm -hmm. And now, about 10 or 12 years ago, I, I felt like they got to the point. It's getting to the point. Where they were powerful enough and they allowed me to do things I couldn't easily do otherwise. That yeah. now mm -hmm. it's a pretty standard part of the beginning the beginning stages yeah. right right well right. like i mean one thing we talk about is that the hard, the hardware business is kind of a bit behind the software business i think in terms of like tools and communities and collaborations because you know there's no stack overflow there's no <laughs> you know the, the joke that i make all the time is that one of my electronic filter design tools it like has an error message where it shows you a fax number that you can fax to ask questions <laughs> um have you tried but, it I have not. I should. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're you just right. can't find your you're fax right. machine. Yeah, I can't right, find right, my right. fax machine. But like, I mean, same thing with like solid stuff, right? Like, I mean, are we going to, I guess you're yeah, the person to ask, are, are we going to get something, you know, where do we go from DXF and like STL? So, so, I mean, I think there's a couple things going on. So one is some of those file formats, which, you know, mm -hmm. you can poop on yeah. easily. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're not the end of the world. Yeah. If, if you think of them as just like terminal communication protocols, yeah. they're not the end of the world. Like, so for example, I have like in my shop, I have a CNC press break. Yeah. Okay. It takes a D, it takes a DXF file. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could. Well, that's the thing is, well, I mean, the, I mean, the, the file itself, I think is, is okay. And I'm, 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 you know, I can, I can hack on a DXF file, but just like if, you know, the, 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 the standards between the ways that different softwares implement right. them makes it really hard. Absolutely. So I was just saying, it's, yeah. I, I was giving it as a, okay, it's yeah. like tolerable yeah. to me that yeah. I have to produce one of these things mm -hmm. and I feed it in and it knows where the, you know, the bends are and yeah, it, yeah. it does everything. It's okay. I don't think it's the way we should work. Yeah. Given we have digital design tools and digital fabrication tools, mm -hmm. you should have a much more seamless experience between these things. Yeah. So one of the first things that's going on is this idea of having, you know, um, online collaboration yeah. as part of it. So like we, we built this new tool, Fusion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to think of the data management and the file management part of it, just think of GitHub. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and so all of us can work on a project together. We can branch and merge different parts of the design. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it gets rid of this idea of even there is a file. Yeah. There's just a design we're working right. on. And right. You modified some of the features and I added something over here. Yeah, exactly. And then we can bring them back together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the future is going to look like. I think most design tools are going to move in the direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and most designs in the world are actually done by a team of people. Yeah. You know, or they're done somewhat collaboratively. Even if you do the design, someone may fabricate that. You know, the person who goes all the way from concept to fabrication is rare. Uh -huh. And most of the time it's teams. And so I think that I think that's the essence of, you know, the new way. And, you know, the mental model we had was GitHub. Mm -hmm. Right. Because right. we saw it in all these other domains and we said, and being software developers, we said, this is a natural way to collaborate. Yeah. Right. This idea of having thousands of files that constitute a design is a crazy way to work. And then having left side flange version two, version two underscore final version <laughs> exactly. 12 millimeter hole. And dot STL. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got to put CB on the end because yeah. this is my CB, version. CB, that's Carl's version. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. That is just a crazy way to work. And so when you see like the new way, you just go, we're never going back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, just this whole notion that you had these tools that existed behind the firewall, you uh -huh, know, uh -huh. vaults and data management systems. Mm -hmm. it, it's a, IT architecture that does not mirror the world. Right. Yeah. So we all, let's say all three of us work in different companies. Um, 
why would you want me behind your firewall? Or why do I want you behind my firewall? And so when you look at these cloud-based tools, it just makes so much sense that you now have um, kind of a topology mm -hmm. that maps to the structure of our project. We have something in the center. We all come together and collaborate. I can take things off and go work in my little sandbox. And then I bring it back. I drop it in the project and you say yes or no. And you riff off that. And, you know, and then John takes it and does what he needs to do. So yeah. that, that's where I think the future of this is going. Yeah. So, so speaking of Fusion 360, um, I'm I'm a Fusion user. It's great software. I'll put in a little plug for it. Um, the other All right. great software, yeah, yeah, great software. Autodesk okay. Fusion yeah, there we go. Um, there, the O'Reilly book about it forthcoming. So, um, <laughs> the uh, the other thing that strikes me about it, you mentioned the file management, which is which is really interesting. The um, the fact that it that it lives partly on the cloud, that it's like software that's a service rather than a single license you buy. You have the software on your computer, and uh, every few weeks it updates itself and it gets better. And it has some rendering tools that send a job up to the right. Autodesk cloud, right? And 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 then come back down. Um, it, it, it occurs to me that you know, as this software gets better, it's it's maybe you can see a day out out in the future when like Fusion 360 is the universal tool at Autodesk, and it does everything that currently you know the the design process might involve. Um, inventor with a bunch of plugins here and there or a handful of highly specialized pieces of software are we headed toward a an era when like one piece of you know universal cloud software can kind of do everything that you need yeah you know i think the, the question is always how long does it take to get there yeah, yeah, yeah. but absolutely yeah. You know, so like you look today and there are a handful of things like we talked about. The data storage and data management all happens on the cloud. Uh, the rendering, you know, the visualization mm -hmm. you can send off to the cloud. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's out yet, but the simulation okay. now can simulation. be done locally or, or on the cloud. Does it have CAM? Yeah, it has CAM. So I, I drive, you know, my mill and lathe and water jet and router. Yeah. All with the CAM software. Yeah. And, you know, you can calculate that locally. You can calculate it on the cloud. Um, you'll you get other kinds of access points. Mm -hmm. So um, in the near future, you'll be able to access through a browser. Uh -huh. Instead of having, you'll have a choice of installed software or browser software. Really? So the browser yeah. is going to be powerful enough it's to It's totally to powerful. I can show it to you. Awesome. When we're done. <laughs> you know, it's totally powerful enough to do it. Uh -huh. um, you know, it, it, the way I work with it right now, is if I'm in a place only occasionally, mm -hmm. I'll access it through the browser. No kidding. If it's something that I use all the time, I I just get a better experience. Yeah, you know yeah, the graphics yeah. are richer and right, and right. you know in some ways, otherwise you're putting your five hundred thousand dollar PC yeah. and turning it into you know a, a, a dumb dumber than my smartphone. Right, right. So right. you know why don't I want to really use the GPU locally and right. So right, so, right. I, so As I they tend say to there is that. no cloud; it's just someone else's computer. <laughs> That's exactly you guys right. have nicer computers than we do at home, so exactly. Yeah. And we have we'll lots use, more. We'll we have we'll lots more of them. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll use yeah. we'll use we'll use Carl's computers. Yeah. So I I think that's the direction that things are going. And the big thing we try to do was get rid of this idea that you needed twelve pieces of software and twelve plugins. Yeah. Because I think the thing that's the most painful, not only, first of all, in the software world of exchanging software from one piece of software to another and back again, with you know really low fidelity and just huge amounts of frustration and there's DXF file files. DXF <laughs> files. But, but the problem is not just DXF, it's DXF of different versions. Exactly. It only yeah. supports oh, 2008, yeah. this one supports yeah, 2012. Is it's it like, R13? Is it R14? <laughs> exactly. <It's laughs> Did Illustrator export four copies of the same line on top of every single line? And now, and now you have to now go the thing and I'm delete it? Every single one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the part that's crazy. And so is that's it 2016? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we ended up saying, for example, Kim is just built in. It's not only built in, but you change 
change something in your CAD and CAM update. So I have yeah. a pocket and I make it a little bit bigger and my tool path adjusts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And generate G code directly and I go off and machine it. You know, sometimes I do, you know, the kind of demonstration of even the dumb CEO can do this, mm-hmm. you know, where you, you model up something, you, you know, you put it in the lathe or the mill. Yeah. You know, and 20 minutes later, you actually have the part and you go, you know, people, everybody's talking about doing, you know, rapid iteration and fast prototyping. Yeah. You go, this is what it needs to do. And, you know, one of, my, one of the most frustrating things, I've been at a lot of uh, engineering colleges lately mm-hmm. and, you know, talking there and people, you know, and people are really trying to modify the curriculum and do lots of hands-on practical stuff. And they always show off all the stuff in their new maker spaces and, you know, their Formula One yeah, teams. Yeah. I say, that's great. And, and they say, you know, any criticism? I say, yeah, mostly you're teaching software that was designed before these kids were born. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This would be like handing them a 22-year-old cell phone and saying, isn't this thing cool? <laughs> right, Look right, at my yeah. satellite phone. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I think we're, we're just about at the breaking point where a lot of the, tw- you know, a lot of the software that we've talked about was designed starting in the mid 80s and going to the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it started with the advent of the PC and really came of age with Windows. Yeah, right. And so it's either 20 years old or 30 years old. And all of a sudden, we have a completely new platform that gives you the opportunity to do things you've never done before. And that's the thing that we have to head to is not just trying to do what you described, which was that incremental layer on three more tools and, you know, and just say, if you rethought the problem, what now is the biggest problems people have and how can the, this new technology platform. And how do people think about it? Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, if the, if the, if the spline uh, control (laughs) points were born out of, were born out of nails in a, in a ship drafting table. Yeah. I mean, that, that made sense during that transition period, but I think people think about the world in a different way now. So yeah. Ways of interacting. No, as a matter of fact, back to that spline thing, I think it was actually done. They called it lofting a shape. Oh, really? Uh, And it was done in the ship loft. Yeah, oh, interesting. You know, it was like, it was yeah. like up above and they pounded nails right, into the right. floor. Yeah. You know, because this thing is 40 feet and long. And so they really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's what they actually did. Right, right. Um, so these new these new tools, uh, you know, are 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 great for um, for people like us. They make immediate sense. And uh, Carl, you are a, an accomplished woodworker and machinist. And, and you know, you, you're, you're using a lot of this stuff personally in kind of a, you know, an, an R&D like capacity. Right. A lot of your, you know, customers are are also like big automotive companies, uh, heavy civil engineering projects, stuff like that. Are they as fast to adapt to this stuff? Are they are they, you know, changing? And, and how is it going to change what their work is? You know, customers are all over the map, uh-huh. literally and figuratively. Um, what I find is. The way things change probably doesn't correlate with the size of the firm. Mm-hmm. Eventually, really large companies are hard to move. But, you know, there is this, um, I think, misperception amongst about large companies that they are unaware and don't move quickly. Mm-hmm. I think half is true and half isn't. They're totally aware and then move slowly. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, and what I, I think really leads to change in tools and processes is individuals. Hmm. You know, that when you look at it, it's a couple of people who start on a design project and can fundamentally, you know, change how stuff is done. And, you know, I think people, when people look, small design teams are what do almost everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. probably by the time a design team gets beyond five or seven people, productivity is yeah. already going down. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you need a handful of people. And what we found, if you want to introduce new tools into the workforce, the best way is through college students entering the workforce. 
hmm. having spent time in school learning and mastering these tools. Um, so I was, like I said, I was at this design firm. We were looking at this one product mm -hmm. that clearly they were torturing a product to try to model it with. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was clearly not designed to do this and they were struggling and they, they'd already more or less accomplished what they needed to, mm -hmm. you know, and he was asking me what I thought of it. I said, yeah, you know, you walk into sometimes into a garage and someone's using a hammer, you know, as a screwdriver and a screwdriver is a hammer. Uh -huh. yeah. You can make these things. At it the works, end of the yeah. day, they're just tools. Well, at, yeah. uh, at, at the, the my 3D printing startup, we had a rule that was that was, uh, you know, we'd, we'd argue a lot about what tools to use for a given task, but the rule ended up being the person actually doing the work gets to pick the tool. Right. <laughs> and so that ended up leading to a lot of really good work because, because you know, you have people who know how to use things. But it led to a lot of DXF files, I bet, it too. It did lead to a lot of DXF files. <laughs> that, you know, so, I mean, the reason we get into these messes is because that's a, that, that's a perfectly good trade-off between mm -hmm. individual choose the tool, but if five of us on the design team all have different tools. Yeah, then it, then it becomes difficult. The one thing that, you know, all of our customers who come to us these days say, and I think this is why there's a look for new tools and processes. Yeah. And I mean, there's across the board and why are people interested in things like additive manufacturing and repurposing robotics and, yeah. and biological manufacturing. I mean, the two things every customer more or less says to us is, number one, I want to be more, and the word they would often say is innovative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, you know, and it's a little bit like the Princess Bride. You know, <laughs> I don't think it means what you think yeah, it means. But, uh, right, right, right. Word, right. Yeah. but it has it, it has that it has that feel to it. And when you ask them, they go, they want like some sustainable competitive advantage. Right. And you know, they often point to Apple and go, I want to make something where everybody wants it and they'll pay like fifty percent premium. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing they all want is they want to make from the time they have that idea to the time they make the physical artifact. They want that time frame to be shorter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so if it's in, if it's cars and it takes three years, that's yeah. too long. If it's a consumer product in six months, they want to make it three. Mm -hmm. well, the more you can iterate, the better your stuff can be. I Absolutely. Think. There's digital iteration and there's mm -hmm. physical iteration. Yeah. yeah. And I've come to the conclusion that they're both incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I think there are some parts of the problem that you you know you can do on that side of the glass, you know, behind the monitor screen, and some stuff you have to bring into the world. Yeah. You know, like a lot of times, you know, people come along and say, you know, in, in one of my shops, I don't see that many 3D printers. And I thought, you know, you 3D print. I say, look, a bunch of 3D printing is interesting, but for a lot of things I do, you know, a water jet and a MIG welder right. yeah, is a exactly. better rapid prototyping machine. Right. Oh, exactly. Right. You know, and if I have CAM software that's tied to my CAD software and I can mill apart. In mm -hmm. 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Why do I want to spend an hour making it out of plastic right. when exactly. I can, you know, right. when I can make it out of steel? It's a recurring yeah, exactly. theme on this podcast that subtractive manufacturing is is more broadly applicable and, and more appropriate for yeah. a whole lot of things than additive, even though yeah. additive is really exciting. I think that's yeah. a recurring theme in the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the place where I think additive and, you know, and the place where I've gotten most excited about additive is in this place where you're now generating different kinds of designs uh -huh. that can only be fabricated that way. And so uh -huh. the yeah. huge advantage in additive, in my mind, is that shape complexity is free. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That. It just doesn't matter where, you know, if you start to the mill it. The tool head's going to go, yeah. Exactly. You have, you have a thousand problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My 3D printers don't care at all about shape complexity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the shapes we have in the world were designed for a different process. And when you first start 3D printing, you're 3D printing things that were designed to be manufactured subtractively. Yeah. As you get to like some of the work we're doing, like with our project Dreamcatcher and this generative design, where you get these crazy organic shapes that you couldn't fabricate 
easily yeah. in any traditional way, uh-huh. then I become a huge fan. And so, but it's the other way. And you realize, right? yeah, you're like, I can fill that with holes and make it weigh like one quarter of what it used to. And, and it doesn't cost anything. In exactly. fact, it saves money. Exactly. It's less yeah. material. Yeah. So I can make it way lighter. I can make it way stronger. I can put the appropriate material at the appropriate point. Right. So, so speaking of Dreamcatcher, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, is what do you think the role of artificial intelligence is in CAD and design going I think- forward? I think like, I, I think this whole like how yeah. will people use it? Like I mean, we're not going to have like a button just like design the thing. But I mean, I think you I've, I've heard that you guys Why are not? looking at well, I, well, I mean, well, what what does that mean? I, well, I think what you're going to get to is just as we're finding out that software and machine learning is able to influence and solve problems in all kinds of domains, mm-hmm. and does it in a really interesting way where you may not even understand exactly what it's doing. Yeah. But the, you're appreciative of the results, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. So we, you know, you see, you see this in all kinds of domains. The interesting thing that I've seen with stuff like Dreamcatcher is you specify the outcome you want. Mm-hmm. So I want these kind of thermal properties or the, these kind of mechanical properties, and you describe the size of it and the material, and it goes off and solves it. Mm-hmm. And it is really a machine learning problem, and you know, and it's a combination of this incredible cleverness. And the fact that you can put thousands and thousands of CPU hours at work. So it's this interesting combination of cleverness and brute force, which is really what's at the heart of all machine learning. You know, and so, you know, I can show you a heat exchanger that, you know, has this interesting thing of not only do I think it's beautiful, but it's a nearly optimal shape. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was designed. Nobody ever sat down at CAD to do that. Yeah, nobody started by drawing those spines yeah. and yeah, trying yeah, to adjust exactly. those things. But you have a near optimal design. The interesting one we've just done is this one in which we built a chassis for a car, instrumented it, took all the sensor data off of it, and then used that as input to the algorithms to generate an optimal Whoa. shape for the new frame. So okay. rather than the engineer just kind of guessing what it was, we took this. We built a standard kind of chassis, drove it really hard, drove it easily, got the range that it needed to be subjected to, input those to the algorithm. So And then it could could it could strengthen up or remove material from different places and redo the geometries of how things connected and And so I think in the places in which design can be easily quantified, Mm -hmm. I think you'll see a lot of machine learning being applied. When it gets to some of the more aesthetic considerations or more out of the box kind of stuff where, you know, Nobody ever imagined doing this with this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's still the domain of us. Yeah. But, you know, you take the you, the idea of the brackets that occur on yeah. aircraft, industrial machinery, mm-hmm. you know, and if you look inside any company, it's been done a million times. I don't, I don't think we're going to take people and ask them to go to four or six or seven years of school mm-hmm. to design brackets with CAD tools. Yeah. It'll be used to make things better designed more granularly. So you're not just designing a chair and saying this joint on the chair can withstand these forces. You're, you're actually designing individual elements of the joint now for the computers. Yep. I think the computer is going to be able to do a lot of this. The other thing that's really interesting is you're actually getting the, the capacity to search for existing designs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, one of, one of the things that always frustrates me is when you bring up most CAD tools, you start with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though you or your company or people in the world have already designed thousands of these things. Right, right. So I would like to start with an existing bracket a bunch of time. Yeah. Um, my brackets just aren't that cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And the few times I want a really cool bracket, I'll go make a cool bracket. But most of the time, I would love to do something that's already, you know. It'd be nice if there was just like a library of pre-made hole patterns for things. Exactly. Like, like 
stepper yeah. motors and stuff. Or whatever, uh, there's a whole like there are a whole the bunch of these things down. where yeah. we're, we're actually doing fairly trivial tests. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things I think we all have to realize as each part of the world increasingly gets taken over by software, if you're at the margin, if you're on the shore of where it's getting digitized, you should think about how this could be done better. Mm-hmm. And for those who think about it as a job, you are getting marginalized. Right. So if your value is adding bolt patterns, mm-hmm. and I'm not suggesting that anyone's is, <laughs> but that's the place where you're not adding enough value anymore. Yeah. You know, right. and just, you know, today if you were driving a car as you watch autonomous vehicles take over, you have to start wondering about the day when this won't be a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there are many things in the engineering and design discipline where this is not where the real value is. Right. Oh, I solving difficult agree. solving difficult problems. People, you know, and, and some days I just look and I go, you know, people did not go to years and years of engineering education mm-hmm. or design school. Yeah, to do these same repetitive tasks. Yeah, you know, to be manipulating those handles on a spline. Yeah, right, exactly. Right, right. All right. So uh, now it is time to move on to another one of our favorite segments, the tools segment, which is where we ask our esteemed podcast guests what their favorite tools of the trade are that they use. and. You aren't allowed to say Fusion 3. I would not say that. <laughs> um, I have many tools that I love. I love These days, I'm most fascinated because I just hadn't done so much of it. I have um, this big CNC press break. Yeah. Okay. And making things that are sh- just bending metal uh-huh. is super cool. Yeah. So I love that. One of the, a couple of the tools that amaze me the most um, are actually things like measurement tools. Like if you actually oh, think yeah. of a micrometer or a caliper, oh, and, and you go, John John sent me a copy of the Mintatoyo catalog for Christmas. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that's actually a cruel thing to do because yeah, yeah. they are not inexpensive. No, they uh, are. It's in my bathroom I now. Gave, <laughs> and I gave my and I gave my brother a brown and sharp uh, dial caliper for Christmas. Right. I I had to invent you know to to order these. Uh, catalogs of Swiss and Japanese measurement tools, you have to have a company name to put in. And so I use yeah. um, Precision Brunner Verka as my yeah. company name. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I think I sent, yeah, you said sent it, one I, to I cut the label on and put it on my fridge too. Yeah. too. I was like, what is this What is this envelope? And I saw it was two company named JDC Precision Bearing and Bushing. And I was yeah. like, oh, Brunner, <laughs> you slay me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But aren't those things the coolest? Oh, they're gorgeous. You know, when you think about this thing, you're making a mechanical device and you bootstrap your way up to the point where you're now measuring at ten thousandths of an inch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost unimaginable. When you think about that, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I think those kind of tools are, are great. I also think the things on the digital side have mm-hmm. now got in the place where they're, they're crazy good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Now we move on to our next segment, which is called Click Spiral. And this is where um, each of us brings in a thing mm-hmm. that's been occupying us um, with, with too much time on the internet recently, something that's been filling up our browser tabs, and uh, and we discuss. And if you, the listener, have something that you want us to waste our time on in the Procrastination in the spiral, therapy. Yeah. You want to take that again? Oh, no. I was just chiming in. We can, oh, we, yeah. can we can leave this in. You know, it's so, it's so off the cuff. Yeah, there we go. Improvisational. Yeah, banter. If, if you, the listener, um, want to uh, send in a, a click spiral for us to waste our time on, uh, you can email hardware at O'Reilly.com, and we'll we'll talk about it on a future episode of the show. Um, but let's get started with with David. What have you been click spiraling on lately? Uh, this week, I actually want to take it back a little bit because we got an email from a listener, um, Samuel Harold. Thanks for writing to us, um, calling our attention to 
these new polymagnet technologies. Now, we actually discussed this briefly, I believe it was in the, the episode with Catherine Haig, um, when we were talking about AmazingMagnets.com, and, and they, they have a little tag for this. My big buckets of discounted magnets. Have com. you been to AmazingMagnets.com? No, it's, it's, it's truly yet. amazing. You can, you can order like <laughs> unlimited tiny sphere magnets. It's great. But um, it turns out that this uh, this polymagnets thing is actually a interesting and novel new technology, and it's this um, technique for, for printing different patterns of, of magnetic domains onto this little film that they have so you can get really weird behaviors we'll put a, a, a video link to it but you can see here they've they've got these two little red um, caps they attract if you put them close together if you put them on the on this shaft here and then but then when they get close enough together they kind of start repelling but then if you rotate it they snap together again um, for the home listener we're watching a really entrancing video right now we're going to put it in the thing. So you can rotate it and do it like that. And it, and the way that they do it is they have this film and they have a custom machine that actually goes and, and deposits the, the different up and down um, magnetic domains. And so you can pattern the way that it's laid out on the film. And so you can get different mechanical actions from it. So like, you know, you can make springs or you can make locking mechanisms or you can make whatever another uh, term that they've brought up is is magnetic pixel. So, yeah. Digitally fabricated custom magnetic patterns Very for all cool. of your sticking together and repelling things needs. <laughs> um, John, what do you have? Well, so um, before the word telegraph referred to the electronic telegraph, it referred to a, a variety of schemes for uh, signaling over distances optically um, through what we would now call semaphores. So uh, there, there were a bunch of these schemes. The one that kind of survives that, that people in like the Navy have to learn is the flag semaphore where you're holding two flags and you, you, you spell out different letters by positioning your arms in, in different directions. There are 30 of these positions. So there's kind of a, you know, a bit at the beginning where you say this is going to be a bunch of numbers or this is going to be a bunch of letters. This was like early YMCA. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Early YMCA, um, but less uh, discernible to the untrained yeah. eye. <laughs> exactly. Well, they're just like sailors if you're a sailor. What's that? Sorry, does the village people have a sailor? They do have a sailor, All right. I think, right? The, uh, yeah, so it's so a one guy in the YMCA. You know right. What so uh, it, in addition, though, to the, to the flag semaphore, uh, there have existed all of these systems uh, that were popular around the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, uh, where you had a giant tower and on, on top of the tower, a mechanical device that would transmit different letters by way of some code. Some of them had swinging arms, you know, a center arm that would tilt and then other arms that would go out at different angles. Um, some of them had shutters, uh, you know, a system of like six or eight shutters that would flip forward and backward and create different patterns that could be read from a difference. Uh, read from a distance. So by the 1820s, the stuff was fairly commonplace for like military and uh, uh, commercial uses. And you could transmit a message from London to to uh, the coast of England in in like a minute, which was extraordinarily fast. At, it was like a, re a relay system? Yeah, a relay system. So there are a bunch of towers spaced about as far as as is optically feasible. Well, this is like the thing telescope. where they where they set the bonfire on fire at the top of the mountain and the next guy does, except it's mechanical and reusable. Mechanical and reusable and a little bit more nuanced. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly more nuanced. <laughs> you yeah. can say more things than just there one, is a fire. Yeah, one, one bit. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> one or zero, depending. Yeah. On, yeah. And it takes an awful long time for the for the for the one and the zero to change, mm -hmm. especially one back to zero. Right. Uh, there's a, a cool map on Wikipedia of the the telegraph lines in France as of like 1820, and it really spanned the whole the whole country. You could get from um, Paris down to the Mediterranean by way of this optical telegraph relay system. And in fact, it was so successful 
that on the introduction of the electric telegraph, people thought that, that this stuff wouldn't take off because the semaphore telegraph was so widely used and so successful. Why on earth would you need an electric telegraph anyway? Someone could just cut the wires. But of course, it's it's much more efficient and you can do it at night mm. and uh, you can do it in the fog and, and in other sort of oh, adverse true, conditions. Yeah. And also... No one, you know, you, you're not broadcasting your intentions to everyone who happens to be watching your your telegraph tower. That's true. So this, by the way, is the origin of Telegraph Hill um, here in San Francisco. And in other other cities have Telegraph Hills, too, where someone would be watching incoming ships and then have a semaphore mechanism that signals um, down to people who are paying attention, you know, insuring the ships or, or trying to keep track of what's coming in or out. Uh, let them know what's coming in and, and uh, you know, transmit the information down. Wow. By the way, in flag semaphore... There are two signals for error, disregard previous message. One is to basically flap your arms wildly. <laughs> and that's that's attention slash error. Yeah. The other is to signal the letter E, but you have to signal it eight times in a row in order for it to mean error. Oh, wow. You would think they'd come up with something easier. A little more compact. Yeah, yeah exactly. I like to just hand waving yeah, yeah. right no <laughs> yeah. no god stop <laughs> all wrong yeah oh good carl what what have you been thinking about well my browser tabs are full with i've been building a homemade um metal 3d printer oh cool really? out of a welder okay and it's kind of doing every everything you ever learned about welding it's not doing it's doing the opposite and so i've been my browser tabs are filled with like studying things about mig wire uh -huh. And like all this crazy metallurgy. Oh, interesting. Because there's a bunch of rule of thumb and conventional wisdom about how you weld and the temperature and the amount of current. Mm -hmm. And in order for it to work and get really great results, I've done none of that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm trying to figure out why it works because it really shouldn't work. Yeah, yeah. So, oh. so what are you trying to do that, that's, uh, that violates the rules of thumb? You're trying to create like a, a sort of a burned... Um, welded surface or no kind of like, like 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 it just feed, feed a wire in and then deposit yeah, it's, it's, beads it's, on top of each other yeah and it, ju it just runs around as oh. quickly as possible uh -huh. and uh -huh. i'm building shapes that are you like can do that this high yeah i'll show them to you so what wow. so, it's, fa it's faster than plastic 3d printers really so what did you look so, so what have you learned about i don't think i've learned anything right yet. i've accomplished <laughs> a great deal exactly. but i haven't learned anything yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my my mind is still like an empty canvas for this and so i'm trying to figure it out and so my breath <laughs> i'm usually a pretty tidy browser okay okay yeah. you, know, you close watching. your windows I do close it, and I and I get crabby. I even yell at my wife, "Close it! Yeah, yeah, how can yeah, you do yeah, it?" Yeah, yeah. Right now, I'm in a state of disarray. <laughs> put, with put the like, internet away. Yes, exactly. Right, right, right. But it, yes, yeah. <laughs> I've got the internet everywhere because I'm just trying to find out. And there, you know, it's it, it's kind of an amorphous collection of information. Yeah. Over the last fifty years. Yeah, yeah. One is welding's developed, but then it also goes back to just early metallurgy. Huh. And so it's actually it's actually really interesting. But I, at this point, I can't say I learned anything okay. but but I love the results I'm getting. Wow. So so That's cool. are there people who are who have exactly the information you need or do you have to find people who have like found the the opposite information and then reverse what they've done? People who have tried to 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 improve welding and go in the opposite direction and you have to undo that. You know what this the way it works is welding is usually taking two pieces of metal mm -hmm. and particularly in MIG welding, you you wire feed more material mm -hmm. and you melt the two existing ones and you add this additional material and the whole thing becomes solid. Mm -hmm. This time, 
There is no existing metal. So all we're doing is using the feed wire to build upon itself, just mm -hmm. as you would use plastic filament. Mm -hmm. And that one was never studied because it wasn't considered useful. Yeah. Huh. And now um, you're mostly melting to itself. And there, there, there is no plate or tube mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. anything else to, to do it. And so I think some of the things that people had figured out just don't apply. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it mm -hmm. doesn't seem like there's an existing body of knowledge about how to do this. There's a handful of people around the world doing interesting experiments. There's a university in the UK doing it. There's an there's an artist, um, Joris Larman, who's been uh -huh. doing some interesting work on this. I've um, seen his stuff. He uses the, yeah, the uh, an industrial the robotic robot. arm. Yeah. And so we've been working with him on that. Is that the, the guy with the robotic arm also has the, the extruder yes. thing yeah. too that yes. goes around? Yes, and stuff? Total, yeah. it's totally cool. And it's more similar to that. This one is actually either on a robot or on a gantry. Um, but I don't think the existing knowledge was actually devised for this. Yeah. So when that happens, you have to kind of go back a little bit more to first principles and go, right, right. what's going yeah. on? And we're getting wildly differing results from these things like you usually go to the welding store and you buy this type of wire or this type of wire and it doesn't really matter. And you look what's on sale and they all kind yeah, of yeah. work. And this is not true at all. Like wow. just by changing this thing that has a little bit more chromium in it, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden it goes from working awesomely uh -huh. to like just you know, how does spitting it, metal. How does it fail? Oh, it, it, in a good case, it looks like a very thin layer, just right. perfectly wrapped. Right, but like huh. it, in, but a, if in it's a bad broke, case, yeah. it looks like a, like a sandcastle. <laughs> like, you know, with, you know, one it of those drips. wet sandcastles, yeah. those drip castles. So it castles. just kind of drips. Oh, uh -huh. I see. And in the worst, there's just voids everywhere. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I mean, it, when it's bad, it's really bad. So it's like, it's just yeah. like a blob of metal. Yeah, yeah. So it just doesn't stick to itself. Yeah. And like, yeah. So, so anyhow, that's over. what I've been studying. Awesome. How about uh, David? What's your what's your click spiral this week? Um. So I don't know. Since we're talking about fabricating things, there's this really great YouTube video that I've been meaning to talk about on the show, which I really like. It's this uh, it's this French guy, uh, Claude. Payard. It's this about, um, how long is this video? It's like a 15, 17 minute long video and he makes vacuum tubes by hand. And it's this like beautiful video where he like wraps the electrodes, um, you know, wraps the screen, puts the filaments in, blows the glass, puts it all together and you really see what all goes into the making of a vacuum tube. It's like a gorgeous video and it has very nice like relaxing music in the background. And, Carl's um, pulling his phone out. And I'm, I'm sending myself yeah, an yeah. email because yeah, I yeah. want to see this one. <laughs> it's really good. Um, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, this whole this whole art of making laboratory and engineering equipment by hand, I think people forget about it a lot. I mean, I know that it, MIT at least used to actually employ a full-time uh, glassblower for making, for making lab equipment because back in the day, you couldn't just go on the internet and, and order it from Edmund Scientific or whatever. You actually, you know, if you wanted to have some kind of weird lab setup, you had to you had to requisition it from the from the guy who makes glass things. Um, and so it's like nice to remember about the, the the crossover point between like handmade craft stuff and turning into like hardcore scientific and engineering equipment. Yeah, right around right around the corner from my shop mm -hmm. over in Berkeley, there's a place that does lab glass. Really? They yeah. make lab glass. And so they have a whole bunch. It's the coolest thing to see because mostly they do it on a lathe. Yeah. And so just huh. the just the idea yeah. of hot yeah. glass on a lathe. Wait, so yeah. they're machining it on a lathe or they're 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 um, manipulating it. Manipulating. But it's like okay. it's like gooey already, I guess. Yeah, yeah. When they're doing yeah. It. And and they heat up the parts that they want to and they make all kinds of fancy lab mm -hmm. glasswork. Huh. Yeah. And uh you know, for most people who are almost scared of like wood turning on a lathe, yeah. when you yeah. see yeah, hot yeah. glass, it's right, glass. Right, right. 
<laughs> yeah, and when they need to manipulate it, they take out a torch and they heat up the part of it and then uh -huh. they stretch it and bend it. And, you know, they use metal tools. It looks like, you know, you've seen glass yeah, blowing yeah, yeah. tools, mm -hmm. but it's glass blowing tools applied to something that's already turning. Anyhow, the stuff they yeah. turn out is awesome. Wow. There's so much cool manufacturing in the Bay Area. Yeah. Specialty. I've, have you ever heard of a company called Scandic Spring? No. In San Leandro. They do specialty springs. Oh, I have heard of oh, these yeah. guys. Yes. They're so cool. And you can you can find they have videos on the internet too. We'll we'll put all of this stuff in the show notes attached to this yeah. podcast episode. Um but they do uh wire extrusion uh spring forming. So Is a, this the uh, one where it just looks like it's just squirting out into a yep. into a, a wire comes off a reel and goes through a hole, and then there are these pushers that surround the hole, and as the wire comes out, you know, they the on a on a CNC program, these pushers pop in and cause the wire to bend, which causes it to, you know, spin yeah. into different shapes. But they'll make, you know, all sorts of crazy wires for precision electronics, the automotive industry, so on, that um, that have a lot of different, you know, a coil and then a 30 degree bend and then another coil and then like a, yeah. a hook at the end or something really crazy stuff. And the cool thing is that they, they have a bunch of these newer CNC wire forming machines, but they also have a bunch of wire forming machines from like the 40s that are programmed with cams. So there's a Whoa. camshaft underneath and to make a new spring shape. You, you open the bottom and you reconfigure the cam. And then that yeah. that's programming the machine. Cool. So that segment was a click spiral. And if you, the listener, have a click spiral that's been eating away at you and that you'd like to, um, uh, to inflict upon David and me and the other listeners of this podcast, just email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. So it's, it's been a pleasure having you on, Carl. Uh, if the listeners want to find you, Find what you're writing, find what you're saying, whatever. Where, where do they where do they look on the internet? Oh, look at me for, on Twitter is probably the best Twitter. place to see what I'm up to. Okay. And uh, what's your handle? Carl Bass. Perfect. Intuitive. Very didactic. Great. Thank you so much, Carl. It's been awesome. Thanks, hey, Carl. it's been fun. Thanks so much. Great. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, Make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>